or what was the difference? You know, the difference was they were willing to do whatever they needed to do okay. to secure the sponsors, to fulfill their dreams, and I found that my um, I didn't have the willingness to do whatever it took to. I didn't want to play the game. That's the voice of three times women's longboard world champion, Corey Schumacher. Corey has made headlines both in and out of the surf industry multiple times over the past 15 years for repeatedly walking away from surfing after securing its highest prize. In fact, I saw them at the Surfers Pull Award and, and, you know, got pulled off to the side by one of them. And, you know, where did you go? And I'm like, oh. and she was crying. She didn't get the, the Rookie of the Year. And I looked at her, I was like, because I don't want to put up with any of this. Like, what is this? Right. What is this value system? Like, what does this mean? Mm-hmm. So I'd already made the, I'd already jumped to the place where I was, I was realizing that um, none of it meant anything. You couldn't do anything with what you were getting out of surfing. There's a larger world out there, and I wanted to know what it was. Welcome to Surf Splendor. I'm your host, David Scales. In today's episode, I have a candid conversation about the current state of women surfing with Corey Schumacher. I basically was born. I, I was born on California Street in Huntington, so literally blocks from the beach at home. And um, both my parents surfed. They met out at Newport Jetties. Um, so pretty much right from the moment that I was outside, I was at the beach. Wow. Um, my dad would kind of balance me on the surfboard um, and um, would take me out. I'd hold on to his back, and he'd just kick out some, like, huge, when we moved down to Ocean Beach, um, San Diego, huge days out at Ocean Beach. And, and just he, would, he taught me to hold my breath to go under and wow. would ride with me on his back. And um, and then um, at the age of five, I finally got like my first my first surfboard, and it was sure. a, a softboard, and um, I rode that out at uh, Ocean, Dog Beach and Ocean Beach for the first time at awesome. five. Um, so that was kind of like my my first real day uh, of surfing, and I was uh, boogie boarding and stuff before that. Yeah, um, I had always longboarded and shortboarded. I mean, I threw out the entire time that I surfed. Yeah, I did the the club coalition contests. Um, surfed in contests against my mom, longboarding. Um, in fact, I actually had an event, two events in Huntington at Golden West and on the north side of the Huntington Pier. One was a USSF and then one was a, a coalition contest, a PLA. Okay. Actually, it was a PLA. So one longboard and one shortboard, same weekend. And I would went, I had a friend drive me back and forth no and back and forth way. and I ended up winning both. No way. Yeah. So... <laughs> And there was a point at which my parents were like, all right, you're going to have to make a decision here. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but um, so for me, I'd always done it. But because there was no future in longboarding, okay. I really had, if I wanted to be a competitive surfer, I had to do the shortboard thing. No competitive future? No professional future? There was no professional future in longboarding and up until 1999, okay. when the very first Women's World Longboard Championship run. That wasn't through the ASP. It was only in 2005 that the ASP came up with the Women's Longboarding Championship. So... At that point in my in my surfing career, if I wanted to be a professional surfer, I had to go. Sure. I had to. If I wanted to win a world title, which I did, yeah, I had to go in that direction. 
Right out of high school, Corey set out on the Women's World Tour alongside Lisa Anderson, Rochelle Ballard, Megan Abubo, and Serena Brooke. Less than halfway through the season, her sponsorship dollars ran dry and she was financially relegated to competing in only U.S. events. So she decided to take a break from surfing and relocate to San Francisco to pursue college. Then what ended up happening is, is in 99, the very first women's world shortboarding, or sorry, longboarding championship came about. Yeah. So I had been disillusioned with the shortboarding thing, and I was like, you know, I not only with the sponsorships, but also just the fact of what was asked my experience on the tour itself mm-hmm. and what was asked of us by judges, by the ASP, by sponsors. Mm. The experience was awful. So that's why it was like, I'm going to commit myself to being somewhere that I really don't want to. Or sure. So um, my mom called me after the semester was through up in San Francisco, hadn't been surfing for a year at all, and said, hey, guess what? The very first Women's World Longboard Championship is going to be held in Costa Rica at Boca Barranca, first one in like 60 years. You got to be there. And I agreed. So I moved back home to here, went over to the contest. Um, and so it was 10 days after I came back here, surfed for you know, like 10 days, went over there and I got second place. After only surfing for 10 days, after, after a year hiatus, basically? Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, it was pretty fun. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, so nice to have, like, my black hair, and yeah. <laughs> they just I went in the complete opposite direction. Sure. Yeah. Which is kind of good, I think, at times, you know, to revitalize an artistic expression. It was important for me because I had been trying to live into an ideal that I wasn't. Yeah. Because I had tried to construct myself in order, an image of myself in order for the sponsors and the mm. surf industry and competitive surfing to let's unpack that a little bit sure um i think there's two things i'd like to unpack actually kind of shortboard versus longboards i think is just worth discussing all oh. in, in and of itself yeah just that transition that you kind of make over time into riding different equipment um but more kind of to the point that you're bringing up of just personally what you felt the industry was asking of you what were they asking of you yeah. what were the um I don't know, professional roles available to you at the time to play? And what were they, did you feel they were asking of you? Okay. Well, I'll start with the first question. Because longboarding was not attached to money and because it wasn't, um, it it didn't have all of the bells and whistles that came with the ASP and anything like that, there was a community of people that was really like family. And the reason that I went to the event was not only to want to win the world championship, but it was also because this was a core group of women that I had grown up with, mm-hmm. and I wanted to be a part of a part of it, a part of their movement, a part of the the, the next step for for women's longboarding because because it was family, and that had a lot to do with it. As far as the industry goes and what was required of me, um, back when I was doing the events, this was prior. This was like right. <clears throat> I was an amateur before the um, Roxy brand actually was even kind of like went live with the board short. The very first year that I went on tour was the year that Lisa Anderson was on the cover of Surfer Magazine. I was actually in that magazine. Okay. Yeah, like 94? It was 90, 94, 95. Okay. But I was in that magazine as like the up and coming girl from California, the quintessential surfer girl. Yeah. That whole thing. And so, and the quintessential surfer girl was blonde, blue eyes, 
you know, thin, feminine, the whole thing. Was that um, Surfer Magazine's uh, title on the piece or something? No, quintessential it, it wasn't. It was, it was in the text. In the in text, the text? Yeah, gotcha. It was in the text. So it was like, you know, she's the quintessential surfer girl, gotcha. California surfer girl. And um, that was, you know, they had like the, the up and coming. Right. Like the, right, right, right. Yeah, the grommets and stuff. So um, as far as, as far as image, absolutely had to be feminine. It was, it was made very clear to me um, both in my surfing community, family, and in uh, the industry, or the, the sponsors, that it was really important for me to come off as a heterosexual, as a, you know, basically just stay away from the lesbians, um, and make sure that I was fit, which then meant thin. Sure. It doesn't mean fit as in, that whole change of fit meaning muscular and strong mm-hmm. was something that happened in the, the early 2000s when training really started to, to become a core part of surfing. The athletes started to treat themselves like athletes. And um, so thin, smiling all the time, make sure that you're smiling when you're surfing, which I was never good at. <laughs> I was really like, too engaged with surfing um, to remember, oh, I've got a smile here. Um, I think that the, the part that was really like the most frustrating was always trying to um, always trying to make sure that you had a boyfriend or you you know you were like that whole heterosexual thing. Yeah. The whole n- not being perceived, not even being like not even being hinted at, hanging with the wrong people because that would end your career. Mm. And um, that time they weren't putting a lot of women in the magazines so it wasn't like you paddle out in a bathing suit in order to try to get a, a camera shot mm-hmm. because the cameras were they didn't care sure so um but there was still that okay you know make sure that you're friends with the photographers go wherever they want to so there was always that chasing of the of the photographer and i didn't like that i really i didn't i don't like i still don't right which isn't um uh, male and male versus female thing. I mean, yeah. it, that's the same for all male surfers as yeah. well. Um, did you feel like, just in terms of your sheer ability and talent alone, that you were being neglected by the industry? Yeah, like, was your surfing on par with a lot of other males at that time? And you felt like you weren't getting your fair share of, um, you know... At that time, it, it was, well... Well, first, let me go back to yeah, 1999, 1999s, 1990s, was when they the photographers started to ask a lot of girls to not wear bathing suits, or sorry, not wear wetsuits. Gotcha. So that started right at the very time that I was like, all right, I'm out of here. I don't want anybody telling me, you know, that I can't wear a wetsuit and also that I can't put sunscreen on because then it was white and they didn't want the women to actually have white. They wanted them to look tan. Yeah, yeah. the photos. Um, and then, as far as as far as not being um, as far as being on par with the guys, yeah, that has that was consistent. That's been consistent, where you're always as a woman measured against the men, okay. as a as a as a how you're valued. Then I didn't question it. As far as my surfing ability, I was on par with a lot of the kids in my in my area that were my age. I wasn't even thinking, oh, I'm not getting as much as the guys. It was, I can't even make a living doing this. Sure. But were the guys making the living at that time? Yeah. The equivalent boys. Absolutely. Surfers? Yeah. Yeah. That's and then cool. as far as longboarding, yeah, I was as good as I was as good as the guys. Sure. Yeah. Were the male longboarders making a living at that time? Not really. Right. Yeah. In longboarding in general, it's more difficult to make a living. 
Yeah. And but there was that transition time where they started to make a really good living at it. Okay. Yeah. Um, but the guys were always the emphasis. Okay. Yeah, or the, the focus. But at the, back then, I didn't question. I, I knew that I was less than. I just accepted it. I accepted that I was less than, that I was, a, you know, a part of a group of marginalized people that nobody really gave a crap about. And the burden to try to, every time I paddled out or, you know, at a contest, to try to do the best that I could was always, it wasn't always just about me. It was about trying to make women's surfing look like it, w- it should be accepted and, and promoted and valued mm-hmm. by the industry. Corey won two longboard world championship titles in 2000 and 2001. She began experiencing some of the same feelings of dissatisfaction that she experienced in the late 90s, so she walked away from competition once again. This time, it was for seven years. What did you do during those seven years off? (laughs) Um, Wrote a lot. Okay. Yeah, that was my... What I figured out, I've always written. I guess if you you were really to ask me, like, what did I want to do when I was young? Right. I wanted to be a writer. Okay. So that was just as important to me as surfing. And something that I held very close to myself because I had this other thing that kind of got butchered by sharing it with everybody. Um, So during those seven years, I, I worked and wrote a lot and um, wrote in order to get into the core of who I was. Okay. Um, to try to, again, who am I? And I felt that writing was the key to open the door that separated the true me from, from me. And what ended up happening was, at the end of it all, in 2005, I realized that I realized that what I needed to do to get into that space to try, because I thought that there was like a little Corey in there that was sort of like already, oh, she's been probably like grown up in there and like I could just walk in and go, oh, hello, I'm just going to introduce my, you know, yeah, introduce yeah. myself and who are you and tell me all about you. What ended up happening is, is I, I burned everything that I had written and during that it was about 25,000 pages worth of, of things that I had written and the door blew open. I walked in, there was nobody there and I realized that I needed to be the one to fill that space. And that was a, a, a moment where I, I, it was like the moment that I've been waiting for for so long since I realized that there was something shrinking inside of me. Mm-hmm. And um, over the next several years, I worked up to the point where I was like, I'm going to win a world championship for me. I'm going to do it my way. No sponsors. I'm not going to have anybody telling me what to do, how to be, what to look like, how to fit in. I'm going to use my voice to try to shift things so that people don't, women, don't ever have to go through this again. Mm-hmm. And um, that's pretty much what I've been doing ever since. Hmm. Um, I didn't realize that the event in, uh, that the event that was going to be right after my world championship was going to be held in China, but that became the very first time that I openly spoke my truth. Corey's referring to her decision to boycott the Women's Longboard Champion event in China in 2011 due to the country's human rights record. It kind of gets glossed over in our conversation here, but this was after she returned to competition to win her third world title in 2010. And prior to that, I'd been an activist um, marching against, um, I was a part of the San Diego, the formation of the San Diego Peace and Justice Coalition right after 9-11 happened. And we went marching down the streets 
protesting invading Afghanistan. So mm -hmm. the activist in me was always there, but there was sure. a separation that existed. When you were winning the world titles um, in the early 2000s, were you out at no, that I didn't, time? I didn't know. Okay. Until pretty much, well, no, I was, I'm sorry. I was not out until the New York Times article. Okay. Um, after my boycott of China. Oh, really? I didn't know that. I yeah. thought you were out previous to that. No, my parents knew, and maybe there were some, some comments about what I was yeah. doing, but. It wasn't like open I didn't in make the industry. It, I didn't make it, I didn't say anything, no. So part of that, is that what you're alluding to with part of that kind of burning the 25,000 pages and coming to that realization? No, that actually didn't have to do with my sexuality. It had to do with being afraid of being myself. And yeah. Part of that was my sexuality, sure. but there was a lot, there's a lot um, in addition to that. Yeah. Um, um, just a side note, have you ever regretted uh, burning all those pages? <laughs> um, no. You haven't? No. Because the catharsis was worth this, the being able to find my voice. It, yeah. I hadn't, I didn't have a voice until then. Yeah. All of my truth was kept hidden. Yeah. So that was, that was the moment that I showed up for myself with sure. a voice. Tell me about that kind of moving forward after 2005. <clears throat> what was, what did it look like in application and practice? It, <clears throat> what it looked like was first extraordinarily humbling. I couldn't, ha I didn't have any masks to prop myself up, make myself feel good. It didn't matter that I was a world champion uh, two times over. It didn't matter that I was anything anymore because I had, I had reached sort of a, an infant stage as far as, okay, well, let's start from scratch. Let's Rebuilding. Yeah, exactly. And again, you burn, if you've invested all of your, your, um, your time and your effort and your truth into, you know, a three and a half foot pile of almost your size um, books, then um, when you burn it, you have no choice but to, to create a life of action. And that's, yeah. so that's what I did. I just started from scratch and started to, um, started to rebuild, not based upon anybody or anything that I'd done prior. Um, my, my love of surfing and my need for being in the ocean was um, a thousandfold stronger. Really? Because it was my relationship to the ocean that was the one thing that stayed consistent. And I recognized that it was a place not for me feeling, needing to feel stressed or anxious, but it was a space that was actually where my heart had always been. And me walking away from that had been walking also away from a core part of my, my, my health, my, sure. my identity, the whole thing. So that became something that was really important. And then just pulling myself back up to health, um, I had, to be perfectly honest with you, I had a, a very um, lovely lo um, and long love affair with uh, all kinds of whiskey and, and alcohol and partying and and um, pulling myself away from those addictions and um, learning to, to get clear again was a big part of the post-2005 experience. Had you been surfing the entire time? No. Okay. No, it was, it was not, it was during the time it was like the, the up until about 2005, I wasn't surfing often at all. Maybe two, three times a year. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, because I hadn't processed through that being something, and that was a big part of getting back into and winning the the, con the, the contest again. It was almost like, all right, I'm gonna go through this in order to give myself the ability to do it without that space of I have to do this. It's an obligation. It's a job. So it was it was a almost like a let's do this again. 
let's do it from a different space. And during the course of doing it my way, there was a lot of healing that was involved with that. Mm -hmm. um, so I felt, it felt like I was stepping into who I should have been as a competitive surfer. Right. Corey's used her writing to openly criticize marketing tactics used to advertise surfing, as well as the ASP's policy towards women surfing. I was curious to hear her thoughts on the new ownership of the ASP, Zoe Z, and the 2014 World Tour thus far. Back in the early 2000s when everybody realized, oh my gosh, we can make a ton of profit off of this brand new market, mm -hmm. um, which is women surfing, they finally came to you know, an aha moment um, with that. Um, so they, uh, they attached themselves to the surfers, but they were using models to promote the lifestyle. And, and um, um, it grew women's surfing to a place where, you know, you had the dream tour, and, you know, it was like the golden era for competitive surfing for women. Louise Anderson, Serena Brooke, all those girls, Megan Abubo, Kiala Kennelly, um, all rose up during that time. And um, even though they were being paid less, each incremental shift seemed like a, a huge massive shift and it was celebrated as such not only by the women who were trying to you know if we celebrate this if we positively reward the the industry and our sponsors through the media that you know we like this this mm -hmm. is that that hopefully it would encourage more growth for them as far as money and sponsorships and, and events um but the reality as as times have shifted and the economy has tanked is that women would first want the chopping block they're the first ones to lose their sponsorships. They're the first ones to lose their events on the ASP tour. So how much of their contribution to the giant growth of the surf industry in the 2000s had very little to do with, with how they're appreciated for their achievement. It was all how much can we get out of the market because we're marketing as a lifestyle rather than a more athletic deal. Yeah. Um, so with the, the economic downturn of 2008, you saw all the, the loss of events for women, and, and um, that's pretty much when you started to see the hypersexualization start to come up. With this new generation of women surfing better than ever, which any group of people even will surf better four generations in, sure. plus all of the, uh, the technological advances, mm -hmm. but because of the, the absolute limited historical connection that, that women have with their predecessors, mm -hmm. there's it's as if each generation of women is completely separated from the last. So the way that the way that the surf industry treats men and women historically, where the men they bring on Aki, they bring on all these guys, and they talk about, you know, the 1980s something something Bell's Beach, and here are all the champions, and this is what they did, and they celebrate their history. They they celebrate the men's history. They tie them to. Um, every generation that came before them. Okay. In the women's, they say this is how the women are better than the last generation. So they downplay, except for one or two surfers, you'll always hear Lisa Anderson in there. Always, right. always, always. But it's almost as if there's really no other women who've come before that. And so there's not, there's not a celebration of the history of women surfing. Hmm. There's just, this is how the new generation is faster, better, sexier, more beautiful. Yeah, I've never thought of that. Um... To me, like the way that I view that just as a viewer without having thought about that detail of it is just an embracing of what's to come. 
you know, I've never interpreted it as a, um, I don't know, like a pejorative of the old or right. what has come before. I just viewed it as, you know, embracing of what's to come. Do you think it's intentionally it's subjugating? It's distinctly different from what it they do It is distinctly men. different. Yeah. yeah. But is it intentionally subjugating? I don't think that they intentionally do anything. Well, I just don't, I don't think that there's enough women involved in the leadership. Yeah, in, I think that's in true. Order to, in order to say, look, this is, this is the result versus you may intend, <clears throat> you may intend to constantly prop up, Mm -hmm. But what you're doing is, is you're you're creating generation gaps mm -hmm. in in setting the women's kind of his, historically up like this. Yeah. And when it when it's set up like that, each generation of women becomes the the um, the one that's heralded. But there's no celebration or lineage. Yeah. What is the danger of that? Do you think? The danger is is that there's no learning that happens. Each generation does the exact same thing that ended up crumbling the last one. Okay. So you see a repetition. You always see a repetition. Like for instance, everybody's talking about, oh, the sexualization and hypersexual, and I'm, I'm a part of it. The very first women to go into that, there was um, one of the women in, it was 19, she was in the 1970s. Then you had Wendy Botha in the 1980s. And now you have, and you know, the girls who are doing it now, Alana Blanchard, Anastasia Ashley, um, there's another one, Coffee, the name is. Yeah. Um, and everybody's like, well, here are the, here's, here's what's good and what's bad about it. And it's like, well, let's go back and, and take a look at Wendy Botha. Her Australian Playboy magazine was the first to sell out. And she's a four-time world champion. Right. She equals Fria Zamba and, you know, Lisa Anderson. Yeah. And the, the argument that's being made is this will be good for women surfing. Sexualization and the beautification and focusing on will be good for women surfing. It didn't do them any good back then. Right. Because it, it's only tailored for one individual. Sure. So if we're not learning that, if we don't go back and take a look at that, I ask people all the time, do you know who Wendy Botha is? No. Right. It's, it's happened before, but what happened then? What were the results then? Mm -hmm. Why don't we know this? Mm -hmm. And that's why. Yeah. So we're making the exact same mistakes. The girls are using the same arguments because they don't know their history. When you know your history, you can build off of that. Right. And what happens when you have a, a lineage is like, for instance, everybody loves listening to uh, stories of the heroics of guys back in the day, right? There's none of that in women surfing. All it is is a celebration of what it looks like. Yeah. And that continues to undermine the value of women surfing. So the conversation doesn't, there's, there's no valuing of it. And if you, if you want to value, if you want to, sorry, increase the value of something, you have to deepen its roots in what is already the established. Here's what we value, here's the stories, here's the heroics, here's the, so it just, it stays this little, okay, well, we're gonna continue to keep it marginalized because we kind of have to and it's good for the market, Yeah. but there's no celebration of it. Do you think that, uh, like currently, how do you feel the ASP is managing? The new, the 2014, the addition of those three? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it's, I think it's, this is an amazing step. Okay. But again, back to that, every incremental shift is seen as this massive, oh my gosh, we're celebrating women surfing. One of the articles that um, ESPN recently wrote about um, the new Zosi and what they're doing with women surfing, and Zosi themselves is saying, we're equalizing, we're bringing equality. Right. But when you have the winner of the men's WCT making, walking off with a $100,000 check, and you have the winner of the women's WCT walking out with a $60,000 check. 
Right. It's just rhetoric. Right. It's absolute rhetoric. And I'm not saying that it's not a good shift. Yeah. But it's it's a facile, like, okay, well, you know. So here's what we're doing. But look at the WQS. Right. There are 12 women's events, 29 men's. So right. is it just for show? Right. Because they are actually getting called out? Yeah. Um, there's so many topics to kind of unpack within <laughs> each of these little, each yeah. of these little things. But I... So I'm kind of of the opinion that it as surfing, competitive, professional surfing, as with kind of most sports, is just a meritocracy. Mm -hmm. And it's like the, the best athletes will get kind of paid the highest amount of money ultimately. And um, if the brands can find a way to market that, they're going to find the, those who are the most marketable. And it seems like with the male and female, like, there's open divisions in the NSSA, you know what I mean? And generally those are dominated by boys. Occasionally a w girl surfer comes through and does compete in those and does really well. Saw that with Carissa Moore for sure. Um, so I mean like that, that $100,000 prize check versus the $60,000 prize check to me is directly related to Kelly Slater's ability versus um, Carissa Moore's ability, right. you know what I mean? The problem with that concept, yeah. as with any idealization of America or any of the systems as a meritocracy, is that it completely disregards the fact that there's sexism, racism, and an inability to actually value something that's different. So if you've got the entire system poorly like, spaced around Kelly Slater as the, the top professional surfer, right. then everything else is judged according to that male form of surfing. Mm -hmm. If you're the best surfer in male surfing, it doesn't matter what you look like, you're going to be supported up through the ranks. Right. In women's surfing, if you don't have the sponsorship because you don't look a certain way, sure. you can't follow the tour in the WQS. So the concept of meritocracy doesn't even work. You don't excel through the ranks to even get to the top 17 because you don't have the sponsorships because you don't look the right way. Right. So how are you supposed to follow the tour that costs at least $40,000 to follow from the QS? The the following of the QS and the money that's involved and all that, those same challenges face the male surfers. But there's as more well. money in the men's. There is, but there's also I would I mean, I don't know the statistics, but I would argue there's a lot more men chasing those world those QS points than there are females. It might not be a proportionate amount of difference, but um I think like the finding the sponsors challenge applies for the men as well it's probably not as tied to looks of course as it is to the women or to appearance you know physical appearance um but i mean there's obviously guys on tour right now that don't have main main sponsors yeah. so which is a challenge if your argument is that the more the more people there are the more money there should be no then zosi's making the argument and i agree that it's about how much effort you put in okay. to achieving what it is you want to achieve, rather than it being about the amount of people who are doing the activity. So if you have equal effort, then mm -hmm. that effort should be rewarded equally. Mm. And uh, the, the way that that whole like percentage of the amount of people are, are yeah. shifted in, in the, the WCT is that there are 30, what, 35, 36 men, and there are only 17, 17. women. Right. So that's how that gets distributed. Right. And I understand the concept that since there's less women, there's, there's a less percentage of money, yeah. but that somehow equals, but it, it's still it's still not. I'm, I would rather the men's tour was 17 as I well. I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. 
totally. We agree don't need with that. the bottom, whatever number is. Mm -hmm. um, I think it'd make it much more exciting. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Um, so, kind of back to that meritocracy kind of discussion, though, like, or, or ASP arguing that equal effort should result result in equal pay. Is that the case, though, if the equal effort doesn't result in the equivalent, um, you know, performance of surfing, for example? Well, again, back to if you have only one way, and that's the only way, <clears throat> that's always, it, it always, it, it depreciates the, um, what other expressions get brought yeah. to it. But, um, so basically it would be like, well, why not put all the, you know, the men and the women together and see who comes out on top? Um, I think that that's a pretty, I think that's a, a, a pretty silly argument to make <laughs> <laughs> because what it, what it asks is, it asks women to be physically strength-wise equivalent to what the men are doing. And I think that, that nobody's going to make the argument that women and men surf exactly the same. Right. Um, but that does not mean that what the women are now getting takes away from the men. Right. You know what I mean? It just asks that the women be treated the same as far as money goes, mm -hmm. sponsorships, visibility. And I think that a lot of people, when they hear the, the, this conversation sometimes, think that when you're talking about raising women up, that we're talking about pushing women, men down. Yeah. And that's just not the case. Yeah. It really isn't. It's just, let's value men and women the same way, which is, if you rip, then let's allow for a woman to rip and be celebrated without needing to plaster her ass everywhere. Yeah. That's all, I mean, that's pretty much the simplest part of the argument. Mm -hmm. So, um... Hiring for a small business is critical. It's imperative that you find a highly qualified professional to treat and grow your business with the same care and detail that you do. LinkedIn Jobs will be your next big unlock. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team fast and for free. Everybody is already on LinkedIn with their resume and their references. So the fact that LinkedIn built a hiring platform to connect the dots between everything is simple genius. It's way more sophisticated than a job board. It's a vast network of more than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set, desire, ambition, all in an effort to help us advance our position. And it's easy to use and intuitive. So effective that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Fast hiring solutions means achieving your goals in record time with rapid growth in 2024. LinkedIn Jobs will even help you write the job descriptions and give you tools and prompts to help you interview your candidate like a pro. LinkedIn.com slash surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. And you can let the world's largest social network of business professionals work to connect you with the ideal candidate to help you grow your business. That is LinkedIn.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Ah, uh, mm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase.
Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. I agree that um, the argument shouldn't be made that they should surf the same or that Kelly Slater is what even female surfers should aspire to, to surf like. But I would also argue that they are, essentially, because even though they're in separate categories and competing separately, um, you know, Carissa Moore or whoever is that's winning contests is essentially approaching surfing the same way that the guys who are winning on the men's side right. are. Because that's what's celebrated. So okay. to my point of not being interested in competitive surfing anymore because it completely flattens the creativity and innovation. Right. Even though that becomes, that's one of those those words that they throw out there as far as, we, you know, for judging, we're going to score higher for innovation. Right. But the problem with that is the competitive environment doesn't even support that. Sure. So, of course, in an environment that only values one type of surfing, everybody that's involved in it, men or women, mm-hmm. is going to be doing trying to do that thing because that's how competition shapes your, uh, your performance, your expression. Yeah. And that's, so, why I'm not interested in are you interested in um, watching? I mean, do you watch the events now? I, I still watch, but mostly to listen to what's being said. Yeah. To read YouTube comments to see if, because I've seen a, a very distinct difference between how the commentators spoke before Zosi came on board and said, "Look, we're gonna, we're mm. gonna, we're gonna reframe the conversation around women surfing." Mm-hmm. So I've wanted to listen to how that has been reframed, and it's been reframed really well. In what ways? What what are their strengths this year, do you think? This year, they're not talking about men's history while the women are surfing. They are actually giving more information about the women other than, oh, she should have turned the here. She should have taken that wave. So there's a lot of, a lot of very, you know, a lot of advice being thrown out when they wouldn't do that with the men's mm-hmm. um, prior. Um, they have really focused on... Um, talking more about the history of the events and the winners mm-hmm. of the women and creating stories that actually humanize the girls, the women. I think the thing that irked me the most is when they'd have, you'd be watching the women's event and then all of a sudden you'd have these guys start going off about the history of the, of the event, the men's, and then talking story about, oh, do you remember, do you remember this time when we were surfing together and competing? And then and I was like, dudes, come on now, you got yeah. the entire men's event to do that. Yeah. Bring up some interesting facts about these ladies. Yeah. Like, humanize them. Give their backstory. Right. Make them into something more than just a body out in the water that nobody cares about. If you care, other people will care too. Sure. That's what announcers are supposed to do. Right. And I think the one really, really big difference too has been the the new um, the new commissioner, the women's manager, Jesse Miley She's Dyer. She's been doing an amazing job. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so Beck Woods. Uh, Did the women have a female commissioner previously, or was oh, it the men? So it. So check this. When I first, when I was in living in Hawaii, when they first decided to block the women's CT off and create like, okay, there's only top 12 or top 13 or just like something like that. Um, I was at that meeting where that happened, and they also um, got a women's representative to be on board. Well. Further on down the line, when Ling Beachley was on, um, was the uh, women's representative. She actually was a part of the vote, if I if I have this correctly. She was a part of the vote that said, "I don't need to be here. We don't need a women's representative. You guys go ahead and make decisions for us." Mm-hmm. So getting Jesse back on, I think it was a, three years ago, maybe, two, um, 
it was the first time in a really long time that women had the voice. Got it. And if you actually read, for instance, um, was it Randy Rarick commenting commenting about listening to women? He was like, oh, you've got to be really careful because, you know, just the stuff that he said was just, it was, oh, they're whiny and you got to be Tem- careful. Temperamental or yeah, emotional. Just, I, I read that. You did? Okay. Yeah. It was just It like, seemed like it was taken from a past era. Like it was a quote that maybe he made in the 80s or something even, you know? That was at that, I think it was at that contest. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so I'm really glad that Jess is on board. I'm glad that she got her law degree. So she, she's just, she's got oh, a head I didn't on know her that. shoulders. Yeah. Okay. And she doesn't work, she doesn't get sponsored by any of the brands and she's not surfing on the tour. Right. So she has at the absolute, you know, center space to stand for mm-hmm. what, doing what's best for the women's tour as well as having once been on tour. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So a lot of this competitive talk is kind of revolved around the way that female surfers are marketed. Um, can you talk about that a little bit and about how it's different for females than it is for males? Sure. Um, I think I think prior to this change with Zosi, because of the marrying of the brands with uh, competitive surfing, um, there was some, uh, and I think that was a part of the really, really obnoxious um, like ads and um, commentary because it was all, let's make women surfing lifestyle, let's make men surfing lifestyle, but more heroic, more focused on their action. It's mm-hmm. more aspirational for the men, whereas with the women, it's just, oh, just have this lifestyle. Do you know the difference? Sure. So, um, so if you, and you can't just, well, so with women, the way that they're presented is they're, um, they might show some surfing, but it's always softened. And the way that it's softened is by a woman being presented as flirty, as being um, uh, kind of giving that come hither look, playful. And it's not to say that surfing isn't that, but if it's constantly put out that way, yeah. then you're not going to take the athletes seriously. Mm-hmm. And social research has shown that if you, as well documented, that, that once you start to sexualize athletes, it, it, it completely turns off any viewer in, in thinking that they actually have ability. So if you've got brands over time who are constantly trivializing or sexualizing or objectifying the women that they're supposed to be sponsoring, yeah. they're creating this feeling in viewers, whether they're surfers, male or female, that again, feeding into that women shouldn't be valued for being athletes. They should just be valued for um, how they look yeah, and lightening up the surfing world. And you'll hear it today even with the ASP. The girls are just so playful and they all get along and she's always smiling and they're so humble. Yeah. Because that's what needs, for whatever reason, that's what needs to be sold to the audience in order for the audience to not be intimidated by how well the girls are surfing. Sure. So um, that's been true a long time. And well, I'm not going to say that, that it's all the advertisers now. It's not all their fault, it's not all the media, it's not all the marketing. Because I think that once you've created an environment for so long, you end up getting girls who internalize it and they come up and they say, I'm going to choose to do this. And I'm not saying that they're not choosing that. I think that they absolutely are. Some are more than others, for Mm -hmm. sure. What about, like, I I also struggle, like just as you're um, explaining some of it, I question too, like, which came first in some scenarios? Because I would like to think that if any of the female surfers went out, like last year, um, I'll give you a specific example, John John Florence doing that huge alley-oop in Bali, right, that that. he got a 10 for. Yeah. Like, I would like to think that if any of the female surfers went out and did something like that, that then that's how they might be marketed. 
and um, instead of the soft come hither, like whatever, I think if if they go, I'm trying to think like, let's say whatever brand sends girls down to whatever surf destination to do a surf trip, bunch of money's invested to go do product shoots and whatever. And if somebody stomps a giant alley-oop like that, I would like to think that they're gonna use that alley-oop as the main marketing material. And if they don't necessarily get that level of performance, sorry, um, that they then have to come back and figure out how to market the product, it might be, I don't know, easier or more valuable for the brand to market something other than, you know, the performance. Right. Well, the, the misconception is, is that women don't want to see surfing, awesome surfing. That's, that's your basic misperception because the brands are actually marketing to men. They're not marketing to what the women actually want. Mm -hmm. We want to buy this stuff. So there's a marketing issue that is, that exists with women surfing. Okay. Um, also, because because the surf industry is a is a, a male dominated world, that alley oop even it was if even if it, look at I'll, I'll for instance leave a message, right. Kenworthy, right, right, right. And I got a chance to talk with uh, Deb Friedman, who was the global um, marketing director of um, Nike uh, during that whole thing, and she was like, "Don't you think it was done really, really well?" And I was like, "The surfing was amazing, but it." it got slaughtered by the fact that there's sumo wrestling in the sand. You were making this film for guys, not for girls. You were trying to convince the men that the girls rip so that there could be some respect there. But the reality is, is yeah, that needs to happen a little bit, but, but as soon as you introduce the whole lifestyle stuff, again, it's, it's meant to go, these girls rip, but don't be intimidated. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's actually kind of a slap in the face to guys too. Like, oh, guys can't handle the fact that women rip? Mm -hmm. Like, that's such a scary thing. And the marketers think that. Yeah. And I don't think that that's true. Hmm. I think that there's so many men and women out in the water now that unless they're constantly being fed this like misogynistic crap, they're not gonna they're not gonna care if some chick rips as long as they respect each other in the water, as long right. as the girl doesn't, you know, completely cut them off. Right. I think that that's one of the great things about outside of the, the surf industry, marketing, competitive stuff. You paddle out in the water, if you give respect, you're going to get respect. Totally. And so that's something that hasn't translated into into the marketing world. Yeah. So I might have gone off on the question. but No, it's okay. But but for me, and, and this is really important, for me the conversation about how women are represented very much is just as much about guys as it is about women. Because I, I just don't disrespect men enough to think that they don't have heads on their shoulders and, and minds. Yeah. I just don't. I, I don't think that that, 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 make, that makes sense in any way, shape, or form. But. I think that there's equivalent examples with men in terms of lifestyle marketing, though. Mm -hmm. When you take surfers like Craig Anderson, you know, mm -hmm. and there'll be campaigns dedicated to him that show very little surfing. Yeah. And a lot of it is just drinking beer even, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So what are your thoughts on that? You know, I mean... Yeah. It's the industry itself not being interested in the performance anymore yeah. because it's trying to reorient itself around the core. And the core in the past was party, drink beer, don't give a fuck. Right. That's the way it was. So as this whole recession thing has happened and the free surfer has come up, which is this marriage between the I don't care about competitive yeah. surfing and the competitive surfer, that free surfer is supposed to capture what it used to be like. So it's a nostalgia. 
And I think that the marketing of women has actually, because they've been pushed as lifestyle, has done the market in the industry so well that they've decided to do it to men too. And that the problem with the equivalency is the more you do it to men, like if you objectify or you, you know, just push the lifestyle of men, they have to, a lot of people think that, oh, well, if you just objectify and sexualize men, you do the lifestyle stuff with men too, like we've done with women, it'll even up, like it'll drop, and it even, no, it doesn't. They get more, women get more and more sexualized. The men, you completely take away their being valued for performance. Mm -hmm. We live in a society that's doing that to men right now. And it's, it has more to do with the objectification and the devaluing of human beings and their achievements. And that's the problem that comes, that, that comes through understanding how, why it's done to women. Mm. So I don't like it when it's done to guys either. Yeah. I think that it's, it's BS. And the social research that I've done shows that, again, it doesn't matter if you're male or female. If you're sexualized, objectified, if it's just about you drinking beers, which I'm sure for Craig Anderson there's enough of video of him surfing. Yeah. Versus all these other girls who don't get the, any of it. They're just seen as sexualized bodies. Mm -hmm. But if you do that to both men and women, the men are actually, the perception of their abilities is depreciated as well. Mm -hmm. It's across the board. It's, it's not just a woman thing. It's sure. just that it happens more to women. Right. I feel like those free surfer males, let's say professional free surfer males, who have made a career out of it, um, nobody gifted them that career, obviously. They linked up with a filmer and or paid the filmer and went out, produced edits, got a sponsor based on the quality of those edits. Yeah. Why isn't that more common for the female surfers, you know? Like, like um, Sage Erickson isn't on tour anymore, so she's probably free surfing a lot more, and I've seen her little video clips on Instagram, you right. know? But I haven't seen her put together a three-minute clip and put it up on Vimeo like... Nick Rosa did right. a couple of years ago to get a sponsorship back from Reef, you right. know? Because there's no, there's no, um, an audience hasn't been cultivated mm. that appreciates women surfing. Yeah. I think that we're right at the very point, the crux of the point where that's going to start being the case. The best marketing of anybody out there right now for the women surfing, women surfing, not the image of women surfing, but women surfing, is the ASP. They're doing the best job, or they, they have are. the best potential to do? They are doing the best job. Okay. And I'm talking about like split second between the heat, sort of like, we have seen yeah, strength yeah. and beauty. She and is, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, and not that it needs to be, because I know they're trying to do the whole gladiator thing, but yeah. but I mean, like they're showing surfing. So I think that right now, with the split from the brands and, and Zosi and everything that's going on this year, I think that we are starting to see the beginning of the cultivation of an appreciation for women surfing. And I think that in the future we will see that same dynamic. Mm. So I think, and that's why I'm super interested just to continue to pay attention. Yeah. Because I think that if we continue down this path, we're heading in some really great territory. Yeah. Let's talk about a couple female surfers specifically. I'll tie it in to what you were just talking about. Like, let's say Alana Blanchard, right? Mm -hmm. The most obvious kind of poster girl. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know her personally, but I would like to think that at some point in her career development, when she was young, kind of aspiring pro surfer, she might have realized like nine out of 10 times, Carissa Moore is gonna beat me in a contest. So my opportunities to be a world champ might be limited. There is this other path for me, you know, of um, 
bikini shots on Instagram, which sure. wasn't a thing at the time, but it is now for her a really big thing. Yeah. What is the danger for her in kind of like, look, maybe I can make more money than Carissa Moore will as a uh, world champ. I won't be a world champ, but it's easier work. I'll still get to see the world. I'll also still get to travel the world and surf and probably improve my surfing given the travel opportunities that I have yeah. by you know, objectifying myself essentially. But she personally is okay with objectifying herself. Sure. What are the challenges, what's the... Um... Sure, well I'll start back to a comment that she actually made. Okay. Which was Rip Crow was taking her on photo shoots and she uh -huh. didn't like it at first. Okay. She was uncomfortable with it. But it kept happening and they kept asking. So then she gave in. As a, like a pre-18-year-old, pre-adult, or? I'm not sure what age she was. Yeah. So you've got the dynamic set up where the, the industry comes to your sponsor, the only money that you have, right? and basically says, we want you to do this. And you know that if you don't, what happens? So Who right, your okay. Sponsor? So that happened. <laughs> so that happened. Yeah. And then what ends up happening is cognitive dissonance, which is, I'm going to embrace this. I'm going to embrace it so much that I'm going to become the biggest proponent of this particular brand of marketing myself and surfing. Mm -hmm. The challenges to that are, first of all, we have to separate that Alana Blanchard is doing anything good for women surfing. She's not. She's doing something good for herself. Right. And I can't fault her for that. I don't think anybody can stand there and go, sure. wag your finger, right. because it's her personal choice. Yeah. And a lot of girls actually look at that, see the over 880,000 followers that she has on Instagram more, more than anybody else. Yeah. Including Kelly Slater. Right. And because of the way that's, that we appreciate people now, it's all about Twitter followers and likes and fame. So she becomes appreciated for the image that she creates and puts up. If that's what she wants. Which seems to be the case. Absolutely. Yeah. Then that's, and she's all for it now. Right. Back to the whole like, okay, well I've decided to do this, so I'm gonna do it 100% cognitive dissonance. And that's what happens sometimes. But um, I'm not gonna say that she's, you know, lying to herself or anything like that. I, I don't, I don't wanna devalue another female that way. Yeah. Um, but I also don't think that there was an environment that was actually made available to her where she was actually choosing. Mm -hmm. That there was a real choice there. Sure. You know, it was a choice of either do this or go. Yeah. Right? And that's what a lot of us experience when we're in these situations. Mm -hmm. It's a false choice. Um, so I think the problem is that there's, there's a narrowly defined idea of success now in surfing and what it looks like. I'm really, really proud of Chris and Moore for standing up and, and on Surfer Magazine and saying, this is something that other women have chosen. I'm not going to choose to go in this direction. And so now there becomes this polarized way of being. There's the Chris Chris and Moore way of being, and now there's the Alana Blanchard way of being. Mm -hmm. And so now you've got a whole two different pathways for women to take. Sure. It seems like there's more than Carissa, though, too, on her kind of side of the ledger. There are, but there's yeah. still only two ways of being for women surfers. Sure. It's completely narrowly defined. And so that's the thing that I would really love to see, is just for the whole thing to break open and for it not to be, oh, there's this one type and then there's this other type and that's all we have. Yeah. Because that's always been the way that it is. Only they've, those two types, one type has always been the sexualized. Right. The other type has sort of shifted a little bit through time. Yeah. 
but it's always been a fully achievement or fully sexualized. Mm -hmm. And that's just, I mean, it's just so narrow and so limiting. Mm -hmm. Whereas I look over at the guys and I'm like, geez, you know, there's this guy and this guy, he looks different and he's doing this and what's going over here. It's just it's so much more diversity is celebrated. Mm -hmm. Right. And if you're growing into a, uh, what you do as a kid, you grow into what you, what you look at and what you want to be. Mm -hmm. That gives you two options as a woman. Yeah. Is there any value at all, I guess, in kind of the sexualization of Anastasia Ashley, for example? Right. You know, like, I mean, and the reason why I ask that is because it seems like... Um, like with Kelly Slater, for example, he's a gorgeous human being, you mm -hmm. know, and a lot of that, I think there's that's benefited his career in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And you're absolutely right in that the focus has been more of his surfing than it has been anything else. Sure. But it's undeniable that his looks certainly probably got him a lot farther with Quicksilver, you know, sure. in the beginning. Um, so, I, I, I mean, I guess let me kind of you're, back you're, up. But the problem here is is that you're trying to compare apples and oranges. Yes, I am, for sure. Because, because, and even if you were to do it with any guy. Yeah. Because there's, society has, there's a history of what happens when women are sexualized. Yeah. And objectified. Right. Which, no matter how much you sexualize a man, he will never, he will never, it'll never, he, there's no victimization of that man. Right. There's not a, a history of, of... There's no plight of that. Right. Yeah. And not only that, but if you take... And if you look at, the, like, again, go back to the research. If a woman is sexualized, all the functions stop working. Mm -hmm. Like, there's this really great experiment that happened yeah. where they they had men and women go in and, okay, we're going to give you a, you know, summer, like a, a math test, but can you wear this in the meantime? Guys put on trunks, women put on bathing suits. The women's aptitude completely tanked. The men's didn't affect them at all. Just from wearing the bikini. Just, just from wearing the bikini. Yeah. Just from being, like, and there was a mirror in front of them. Just from being completely engaged with, oh my gosh, I'm, mm -hmm. this, is, this is my experience of, of my body right now. Mm -hmm. And so it's just, it's a completely different set of problems. Yeah. You know what I mean? Totally. So as far as there being a positive to the sexualization, it's very limited mm -hmm. and it's money and it's success for a very short period of time for that one individual. Mm -hmm. What it does to people watching, the young girls, what it sets up as far as what sexualization does to other women, it's literally tied to three of the most severe problems that women have to tackle in general. Eating disorders, body anxiety, depression. It's directly tied to that. So at the expense of everybody, these women are saying, I'm going to find my success. We celebrate this in this culture now. Mm -hmm. where, where it's the, no longer is the conversation I'm going to do the best for my peers the best thing that I can do in order to support my peers what I'm going to do is find the best possible thing for me no matter how short of a period of time it is two different ways of thinking yeah just two different modes of thinking but for somebody who's in that position to stand up and say, this is really what I think I'm doing to better women surfing, yeah. it's complete bullshit. Yeah. They may think that, right? but it's not, it's... It's a very short-term view. And of, it's not true. Yeah. Like, they're not doing anything. So... Let me ask you this. Um, the way the brands, that those brands are marketing, I know you've, I guess, made a case that it is geared more for men than it is for women. The male gaze, yeah. How would 
you then market that product for a female? Sure. You know, um, what would, would the alternative at, be? I would look at Sia, which is an all-women's um, clothing company. Yeah. It's doing some amazing things. Tallow is doing amazing things. And what are they companies. doing? They're presenting women still the lifestyle shots, but it's there's a completely different way of showcasing women that shows them as active. Like, for instance, you don't chop off their heads and just show their body trunk. Right. Small things like that. Um, instead of showing women barely surfing and then just throwing in some fun or jumping, playing on the beach, mm -hmm. you really capture the surf yeah. of the women at the same time as you're presenting uh, stylized and very creative shots. My solution is support the smaller brands who are getting all their stuff stolen by the bigger brands right mm -hmm. now. And they're constantly going to battle with these guys with lawyers. It's just ridiculous. Support the smaller brands. Identify the ones that are invested in positive images. And then get more women into the leadership of these companies. Not women who have been brought up within the industry, but women who come from outside, mm -hmm. who actually understand this, is, this can be really, really solid and really good for, um, for drawing more customers in. Because the companies aren't interested in the, the audience that already exists. Right. What they're interested in is drawing in new, yeah. right, new, new customers. Yeah. And they're going into international markets now where they're not going to understand, like for instance, Chinese, Indian, they're not going to understand these sexualized images. So they have to shift their marketing anyway. So it's not like, oh, we just can't afford to. It's literally, it's just like, well, you're already going into these places where you're going to have to rethink everything. So rethink it in a way where you can present something across the board that's not going to offend or degrade anybody. Mm -hmm. But it will be like like a lot of women in these, com in, these, in these places, I want to be a strong woman. Not I want to be the object of somebody's desire. Yeah. That, that's what any, that's what, that's what surfing is. When you go out there, you're not going out there to, to, to be the object of no. somebody's desire. You're going totally. out there to engage with something that's a massive undertaking. Right. And that's the way it should be represented. Yeah. Are there independent, you know, projects that have come along that you've seen that have? There's some potential. I'm telling you, I've, the people who I've been uh, speaking with lately, as far as like, there's um, nonprofits that are starting to emerge everywhere. There's women's product lines that are starting to pop up everywhere, and it's because everything's become so polarized. Mm -hmm. It's like it's it's almost as if the hypersexuality needed to happen in order for these other women to finally go. You know what? It's time to show a difference, a different way of being. Yeah. And I and that happens. I think just in in general. Yeah. In right. in society, there's always an anti movement for every movement. But it's interesting know? because it's not an anti. Everybody that I've been speaking to is like, we don't want to just stand in opposition. We want to create what it looks like, what what our vision of it is. Right. So what's really cool about it, and this is where I'm at right now, because I've stand, I've, I've stood for the last three years and picked apart, deconstructed. I'm gonna put. I'm gonna show you where everything's wrong, and I'm at this place now too, where I'm like, okay, it's 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 time to move from opposition to the creation of something, and that's the most exciting thing that I'm involved with, and that I'm seeing from these other women as well. Hmm. Is they've stepped into that. It's time to create, yeah. and all of us are very careful because we know that the thing that gets created is the thing that gets sucked back up into the the thing that is already present. Totally. So we're actually all bonding across the line 
reaching out to each other and creating a network that's just as, so all of these individuals, so just as large as the industry itself. So you can't, you might be able to pluck one person and pull them in, one yeah. idea and pull them in, but if it's, if it's a unity. Yeah. Do you want to talk about what you're creating or? Um, I can, I can mention what I'm working on. Um, it's called the Inspire Initiative. And my first event is going to be this Saturday. Um, and then also there's a, an Institute for Women Surfers that's going to happen this weekend, uh, sorry, this summer. And that is going to be the start of. What's the Inspire Initiative? It's uh, my nonprofit. What is, what's kind of, what is it? <laughs> what is it? Okay, so describe it. Um, I, I'll wait. Okay, I won't, yeah, yeah, that's I'll fine. I'll wait. But um, it's not just, it's not just my thing. I've been speaking with a lot of women actually around the world who are like, oh my gosh, this is so weird. Synchronicity, we're all doing the same thing. Yeah, like, what, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. I think like people always say obviously like if you do something that you love you never have to work a day in your life <laughs> sort of cliche you yeah. know and like I found that not to be true necessarily because right. it ends up just being something else that you hate waking up and going to do yeah. um, it seems like at different times in your life maybe surfing has represented that yeah. comp or competitive surfing anyways yeah, um, in hindsight is there anything that you would have done differently? I wish that I would have found my voice earlier. Okay. That's definitely something that I wish. I wish I would have been less concerned about what other people thought. But at the same time, I appreciate that everything that I experienced was because I was trying to fit into something. Mm -hmm. And, um, but I, I wish I would have been less concerned about what other people thought. Yeah. I wish I would have been okay with making mistakes perfect um can you tell me about out in the lineup yeah the yeah, film yeah can we talk about that sure it's been so so warmly received by everybody um we just won the jury selection for best action film award up in newport okay oh against, at that film festival against five summer stories yeah all right so it's like the timing of it is really awesome we just sold out the san diego surf film festival the first block to sell out i mean being really, really warmly received, and um, explain what what the film is. Okay, um, basically, it, it follows a gentleman by the name of uh, David Wakefield and Thomas Castets. Thomas created GaySurfers.net, okay, which is sort of how all of us came together. Was through him um, creating that website because he couldn't find anything but really bad porn by typing in GaySurfers. No way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So, um, and David found him through that. David hadn't come out yet. He was playing the piano at a, his local church and just kind of quietly going about his business. He was a, a state champion in Australia at one point. Um, so it follows him kind of his adventure and coming out a little oh, bit. Oh, okay. Um, and in the process, traveling around to um, like Ecuador. They came here. Um, they went to Hawaii, uh, around Australia. But... Um, they have conversations with different gay surfers in different places. Um, a lot of free surfers, which I absolutely adore. I adored reconnecting with with people um, who are just free surfing. Um, and that's almost like there's a tone of here's the free surfers, and then mm -hmm. here's the the surfers who have had to experience the industry and what mm -hmm. they're. You can't help but but notice the difference. Sure. Um, and uh, so it just tells it sh it tells some stories. It kind of humanizes 
gay surfers in a way that hasn't happened. And it speaks about our different experiences. We, we each get to share our different experiences and, ha and how very different they have been. Yeah. And um, it's, it's definitely a hopeful message at the end too. So it kind of, it, it tracks through the problem, goes through the challenges, but then it also ends on a really positive and upbeat note. Sweet. Yeah. Is the movie available for purchase currently or available you can to rent, view? You can uh, view it online. Okay. You can go to outinthelineup.com okay. and you can rent it $6.99 on Vimeo. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Surfing has become a lot for you, more than just an act, obviously. It's become a platform and kind of a catalyst for things. Uh, has any of your kind of political activism changed your enjoyment of the act of surfing? No. No. Because now, it's the thing, it, it, I guess there's still a part of me that's, that's separated from it, right? So there's the surfing, but now I've been able to reconnect with the surfing as, you know, like when I was a kid and I loved it. Now the competitive side is the activist side. And so the trophies and the, I've, I've, it's almost as if, okay, so I married the two and then watch them do this again. Mm -hmm. So that, I now feel like I have a, uh, the ability to change things with that side instead of just being a victim of it. Right. And so. Interesting. It has, it has really shifted on that side. And the surfing side is just when I paddle out in the water. I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't, I'm not chatty, I don't need to sit at that social hour, I don't care if it's junk, Yeah. but I'm gonna, I'm gonna enjoy myself, yeah. because that's what I'm there to do. So, and that's again, for me, talking about the competitive side and all of that, it's distinctly different from surfing. Yeah. So, when I'm talking about like, people out in the lineup, totally different. This is this a whole different, what's going on over there? Yeah. It, competitive surfing could end tomorrow. It could fall apart, fall into the ocean, and, or blow up. This is still going to be here. Yeah. All of our relationships. All of our love for it. Um, that leads me actually to my next question, which is, has any of your stance on, I mean, you're, you've been pretty vocal about things, and it is, uh, I think, people either completely agree with you or completely disagree with you, especially on the internet. Yeah. So has that jeopardized, have you lost any relationships because of that or? No. Do you regret any, no? No. You know, I had to go through a, I had to go through a, a well, not that I'm aware of, but I don't think that people are really good at saying things to my face. They might be good at standing behind an anonymous sort of sure. you know, moniker and, and doing whatever, but I've found that, you know, like we can disagree it's like political disagreements it's like yeah but the nice thing about political disagreements is at least you're talking about it right at least there's conversation being started totally um i've had people i think um completely disagree with me but then they just kind of quietly go talk about me behind my back or to somebody mm -hmm. else um which to me is very cowardly it's like if you have an issue like let's just talk right um but at the same time i i, I don't value people who don't know how to Communicate face to face. You <laughs> yeah. know what I mean. Um, what I do value is people who know why they believe what they believe. Yeah. Um, I had to learn because of that, not wanting to be publicly divisive, 
from growing up, always wanting to publicly please be a yes person. I had to learn how to take criticism. I had to learn how to have people disagree with me, and I had to learn the difference between a real disagreement, a real argument, and something that was just, I'm going to be me. Right. Or it was based in a really weird sort of logic that came from, I don't even know. <laughs> and then, of course, when you're online, you have to just learn how to surf the trolls. That's a whole different dynamic <laughs> that we're all still learning. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. the new thing. Yeah. But I also, I also think that surfing is ready for conversations like this. I believe that the surf audience can actually engage in these conversations without it taking away from their joy and their love of surfing. And I think that it's the renaissance that we're going through right now has nothing to do with technological advances. It has nothing to do with machinery, fabrics, or the industry. What it has to do with is a socio-political awareness. And I truly believe that with all the stuff that's going on around us. And so if somebody hates me because of my stance, they're either going to listen or they're going to shut me off. But yeah. I'm not going to be quiet because I'm afraid somebody's not going to like me. I'm just not. Yeah. Um, what is your current surf schedule now? Like, um, you, how often are you surfing? And in the in the spring summertime, I haven't been surfing too much during the winter. It's like I hit I hit late December January, and I'm like I can't do it. Yeah. Um, I'll surf like three to four times a week. Yeah. Yeah. Do you get to travel any longer for surfing? Mm -mm. Not so much. No, but that's all right. Yeah. Um, as long as it's an ocean. Yeah. <laughs> We always have waves in Southern California, <laughs> marginal waves. Um, final question yeah. for everybody is, what's the last board that you rode and when was it? Okay, well, um, the last board that I rode was a 5.5 uh, um, used Almeric DFR. Oh, really? <laughs> and then prior to that was a, a 9.3 Ashley Lloyd okay. speed stickle. A lot of range between those two boards. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, David. Yeah, of course. Corey Schumacher's website, which she updates regularly with her commentary on all things surfing, can be found at coreyschumacher.com. episodes of Surf Splendor can be found on our website, surfsplendorpodcast.com, where everything is archived for free. If you listen to this show in iTunes or Stitcher, make sure to rate and review the show. That increases our rankings and helps grow the show. And I insist, if you enjoy listening to this show, then you want it to grow. The more listeners we have, the more shows we are able to produce. You are our only form of advertising, so please be sure to share the show with your friends. You can do so via social media, where you can find us at Surf Splendor. 
Thank you, Corey Schumacher, for challenging convention. Thank you, our listeners, for sharing the show. And we will be back next week. This is David Scales for Surf Splendor saying, until next time, aloha. Free speech, lipstick, and the 